couple of things are coming together tonight in this passage that are worth mentioning as we get started. The first is that this is the final conclusion to chapters 8, 9, and 10. This entire section of this letter to the Corinthian church has been focusing in on a particular issue, and here it finally comes to a head. He finishes off the argument. And when we return to 1 Corinthians um, in February, we'll pick up on a brand new issue, uh, a, a standalone section of the scripture. We'll be on to something new. And so that, uh, that means you have to have kind of a feel for the last few chapters to know what's going on. The second thing uh, is reflected in, in the series as we've labeled it for chapter 10, warning. Okay? And in chapter 10, he's been finishing off this argument, focusing on hidden dangers in the Christian life. And so he's talked, um, he's talked about presumption, and he's talked about temptation, and he's talked about idolatry, and then tonight he's going to talk about legalism, which I will unpack in just a second, um, but let me give you the context of this whole story, starting in chapter 8. In the church in Corinth, um, the church had become divided on a particular issue, and the issue was, is it all right for us as Christians to eat food that's been offered to idols? And they'd broken into basically two camps. There was the yes, it's fine camp that said things like, we know that idols aren't really gods. We know that they're false gods, that there's only one God, so that's not a big deal. We know that food is just food. It's just a physical thing, so that's not a big deal. So it doesn't really matter if you do this yes or no. But there were others, many of them who had come from worshiping in these temples before they knew Jesus, uh, come from this background who, who saw that as a complete disregard for who Jesus was and who they were as Christians. And so they were very uncomfortable being exposed to, um, to all of the accoutrements, all of the things that went along with idolatrous worship, including food sacrifice to idols. And so what Paul's done in the last few chapters is he's, he's really, uh, the first thing he does is he goes under the question entirely. He doesn't answer yes or no. Instead, he says, the way that you're going about answering this question is wrong. You're not thinking about all of these other things. You want to just know, is it okay for me to do this, yes or no? And he says, instead, I'd like you to think, how is this impacting people around you? I'd like you to think, how does this impact the way that you view the world? How does the entire Christian worldview, if you will, inform these things? And so he says, you're doing it wrong in terms of your decision-making on behavior. Um, and then in chapter 10, he begins to answer the question. Now, I want you to notice as we read this passage that he says something different, something maybe even opposite of what he was just saying. Last week, we looked at an earlier portion of chapter 10 where he basically says, look, when you go to a temple, even if it's just a, uh, a civil meeting, even if it's just a wedding and you've rented out the hall, when that meat is offered to that other God, you become our participant in that act of worship. So it's not merely food. He says in the same way that communion for us is not just something we take because we're hungry, because we need a snack, it represents communion. It represents fellowship. It's, it represents that because of Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was shed, we now have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another. And so when we partake of it, something significant is being represented. And he says it's the same for idolatrous worship. And so basically he says, so don't do it. Where he moves now 
almost, like I said, almost sounds like he's contradicting himself. Notice what he says. Let's read it together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try and please everyone in everything, but I do not, uh, uh, in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Father, when we look at how the New Testament talks about what happens when we open your word, about what happens when the truths of the scriptures are expanded upon, um, it's more than just something that was said being reset. It's more than something God said being reset. You say that by your spirit, you speak to people today. And we pray that that would be the case tonight. I ask, Father, for receptive hearts for everyone in this room. And I pray, Lord, for, uh, for glasses that operate like reality, that we would see clearly into our own lives, into our own motivations, into our own hearts. Um, simply put, Lord, I pray that your word would do as it's promised in Hebrews, that it would cut and rightly divide us, that it would be capable, living and powerful, of splitting between both bone and marrow and soul and spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, so on one side, Paul says, food sacrifice to idols, don't do it. Why would you even do that? He says it's, it's crazy for you to think that you can both and idol worship and Christianity, both and eating a sacrifice at a, at a pagan temple and communion at church. But then it seems like he comes at things a completely different angle, and he says the opposite of that. He says, now, when you go to the market, don't ask to see where that meat's come from. Don't ask to discover if the meat that you're buying in the market has been offered to a sacrifice, and he says, and when you go to a non-Christian's house and they have you over for dinner, don't ask there either. And so you have to go, wait, what's going on here? And the thing you have to understand is if Paul had left things as they were, we would have had two very clear results. The first is one side of that argument that I mentioned, the yes or no argument, you would have been able to hold up their hand up in the air and say, these are the victors, right? There we go, Paul says we're right. And so you can imagine at this point in the letter, before verse 23, everybody in the church who was nervous about idolatry having their I told you so face on, right? And saying, see, I told you guys you shouldn't be doing this. He's not done yet, okay? And so he wants to address the other side. He's spoken to those who are presumptuous 
in their strong, unoffended conscience, and now he wants to deal with those who are weak in conscience, okay? He wants to address both of them. But the second thing, the second thing is that if Paul had left things where it was, then effectively, rule-keeping wins, okay? Now, the reason we've titled this tonight, The Dangers of Legalism, is not because that's the concept Paul expounds upon here. He never uses the word. Um, in fact, there's a sense where what he's talking about is not legalism itself, which I'll define in just a minute, but consequences, natural byproducts of legalism. What I'm telling you is that this passage, if you are a legalist, will make no sense whatsoever. It will confuse you. And so the real danger of legalism that we'll see tonight is that it's always an oversimplification and that it doesn't fulfill the reality of what God calls us to. And it doesn't fulfill the understanding that Christians have of obedience. Uh, the danger, if you will, of legalism is not that it will make you do bad stuff as much as it will leave good things left undone. Okay? Now, what is legalism? First off, um, let, me, let me point this out. That in Paul's day, there were Greeks and there were Jews. And that made up the majority of the Roman Empire. The Jews were by far a minority, but as Christianity was proclaimed and expounded upon, there were these two audiences that responded. The Jews came from generally a very religious background. They had the Old Testament law, and they associated that law and keeping those commandments with a relationship with God. And so the message to the religious Jews was, Jesus is your righteousness instead. You could never keep the law on your own. You were never supposed to believe in Jesus that God promised alongside the law, even before the law, going back to Abraham, and you will be saved. Okay? And so what we find is a lot of people coming in from those camp have a hard time laying aside the way that they've lived in light of the rules. right? And so they're coming and they're going, you know, it's totally great that you have Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You still got to keep all the rules, you know, and they have all of these boundaries and borders set up from their past. And so that's where they start from. The Gentiles from a completely different place, right? They don't have necessarily this religious background. And even the religious background that they do have is not strict and moralistic. It's, it's, um, it's hedonistic. It's pleasure-oriented. You know, the way that you worship many of the gods of Rome involve sex and feasting and drinking and orgies and these types of things. And so they come at who God is in a different way. They're like, wait, there's, there's one true God? Wait, there's a moral command on life? There's true right and wrong, and we can know what it is and we'll be held responsible for it? Those two entry points um, both come into Christianity with misunderstandings. Okay? Now, in our world today, legalism is not something, this, this idea of, of uh, I guess I better define it, so let's do that first. At its heart, legalism says what makes a good life, what leads to blessings or rewards, uh, and what sets me right with God is me keeping the rules. That's legalism, okay? It says that the way that you should think about life and how it's good in how it's lived, uh, in how, uh, how you gauge other people, all comes down to a list of rules. That's not really something you find in our culture outside the church currently, 
for most of our culture, we stem from a place of moral relativism, right? Where we're not really sure that there's moral absolutes, and the only thing that we really want to stop from happening is people who are intolerant of my way or their way or these types of things. And so, so like the Gentiles, when we come in, uh, we're exposed to the reality of truth and law and commandment and absolute and God and these types of things. So all of that to say that legalism in this sense, that thinking the way to live right, uh, live life rightly, the way to experience, call it heaven or salvation, the right road is rules. That doesn't really exist outside the church very often, but it definitely does inside the church, okay? And Here's, here's one of the reasons why this is the case, even if you come from that side of a background. Maybe you can relate to this. You didn't grow up in a uh, church-going family. You didn't grow up in a religious family at all. You encountered Jesus kind of like somebody steps into the street and gets hit by a truck. You, you didn't really see it coming. You weren't seeking it. And, and there was a sense where when you got to know Jesus, everything you knew was wrong. So there were things that you thought were fine that you now believe are not fine. There are thought things that you thought were neutral that you now know are good things and have to be pursued. Okay? Maybe you found, like Paul talks about, that um, God works in us both to will and to do. And so you find even the desires of your heart on what you want to do changing. What often happens next is from that place of freedom, recognizing there is truth, recognizing that some things are black and right, white, recognizing that there is a God and consequence and judgment in all of this, sometimes you snuggle real up close to the rules, okay? And I don't think very many people, like you won't meet somebody who will shake your hand and say, hello, my name is so-and-so and I'm a legalist. And, and in actuality, I don't think that there's anyone who'd, who'd say, my doctrinal statement as a Christian is I do the right thing and God will reward me, right? But the practical aspect of legalism is still very much alive in the church. And the best way to see it is to use a passage like this and discover how, um, how different the conclusions on any given decision will be for the legalist and for what Paul is presenting here. I'll show you what I mean. Notice how he opens this up in verse 23. Look at the first phrase there. He says, all things are lawful. Okay. Now, whatever that means, which we'll deal with in just a second, how does that sound to somebody who believes that the way to live the right life is reduced down simply to the rules? It's inherently offensive, right? It's inherently like, wait, come on, you don't actually mean that. Many things are lawful, that I'm okay with. All things, I mean, why even say something like that? But Paul here, and he's doing one of two things, either he's stating this from his own mouth, or he's quoting the church in Corinth and saying this, okay? So it may be that this is something that the Corinthians, especially those in the church who were justifying their behavior, just were in the habit of defending themselves and saying, hey, everything's lawful. I'm, I'm saved completely in Jesus Christ. He's fulfilled the law, and so now my behavior isn't, uh, you know, moderated. My behavior isn't commanded or controlled by the law. All things are lawful to me. Now, even there, and I'm taking a guess here, but even there, I don't think the Corinthian church meant all things in the sense of all things. So the idea isn't, well, Jesus saved me, so now I can kill anybody I want to, right? What they mean, though, what they mean, though, is that their relationship with the law has changed. And here, we gotta, we gotta understand that. That's important. 
The Bible declares that when Jesus came, he came different than when Moses came. You see, when Moses came, he came to lead the people. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and he was the giver of the law, right? Directly received from God, he presents them with the law, which is why we still often, and sometimes even in the Bible, find it called the law of Moses, okay? Now, Jesus, when he came, according to Martin Luther, and I love the way he puts this, didn't come as a second lawgiver, okay? So Jesus didn't come and say, I'd like to make an amendment to Moses' law. Or I'd like to provide a new interpretation to that lens. Or I'd like to create a new religion and give you the right set of, set of rules. Instead, according to Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so this is how Martin Luther puts it. He says, Jesus didn't come as another law giver, but as a law keeper. Okay? Jesus came to live a life under the law, as God in the flesh, and do what the law required that we could not do. Okay? And so when Jesus does that, when he both lives a perfect and obedient life, stained or unstained with sin, and when he then takes upon himself the punishment that we all deserve for not keeping the law, that changes everything for us. Here's how Paul puts it in the second letter to the Corinthians. He says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? So the question of what does righteousness look like for the Christian has changed from he who keeps the law to me because I believe in the one who kept the law on my behalf. Okay? That's where this idea of all things are lawful comes from. And it means very clearly two things. The first that it means is that there are some aspects of the Mosaic law that were inherently symbolic or inherently limited to what God was doing with the nation of Israel and are no longer relevant for the Christian life. Okay? So, for example, kosher laws. All of those things were primary, primarily statements about who God was and how great the gulf was, clean and unclean, between us and God but when Jesus fulfilled the law, he so fully fulfilled the kosher law that we no longer need to keep it. And if you listen to Jesus' own words, he makes this clear. So Mark adds as a commentary on Jesus' words, in doing this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Okay? It, much of the sacrifices required in the Old Testament are no longer necessary because Jesus was the ultimate, final, and complete sacrifice. But the second thing it means here when it says all things are lawful, not just I can have a ham sandwich now, but also that my relationship with the law has changed. That that's not, no longer the determinant in my life of eternal consequence. That's no longer the determinant in my life of righteousness. Uh, now all things are lawful. Now, what Paul does, whether he states this for himself or takes it out of the mouth of the Corinthians, he clarifies it. He modifies it. Notice he doesn't deny it. He doesn't outhand deny it. He says, you say all things are lawful. That's clearly not true. He leaves it laying on the table. He says, okay, all things are lawful, but, and then he amends the statement. Then he modifies their thought. If you read 1 Corinthians closely, this is Paul's MO throughout the whole letter. He takes the things the church says, and he says, yes, but, and then he clarifies. 
He constantly starts with where they both agree. He takes the words from their mouth and he says, you're right in principle and wrong in application. You're right in part, but let me fill in the rest of the truth. And in the same way here, he takes this saying and he says, yeah, that's right. The way that we think about living our lives is no longer reduced down to the law. It's no longer reduced down to the rules. That alone, as I mentioned, is a weird thing to say if rules are what matter. But notice what he does here. He says, first, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Do you see that in verse 23? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Okay? So what he says is, yeah, you're right. We don't determine behavior simply by the law anymore. Instead, we ask, is this helpful? Okay? Here's what he means. He means that as a Christian, we look at the rules and beyond that, above and beyond that, we go, okay, is this beneficial for my life? Is this going to bring about good in my life? Jesus and Paul both use the metaphor of fruit. And so the idea is, are the things I'm planting in this behavior going to bear good fruit in my life? Are these investments that are going to pay good dividends? To put it in the big picture, is this something that's going to draw me closer to God and closer to Jesus? Is this something that's going to be following in the footsteps of Jesus and conforming me to his image? Is this something that's going to be, in the eternal sense, based on the character of God, positive? Okay. Now, I want you to recognize that if you reduce your life down just to merely rules, then you'll never ask this question, because you don't need to. Okay. Because inherently, a list of rules, and thinking of life in terms of a list of rules, is just boxes that you check or you don't. That's all you ask. So you don't ask, is this good for me? You ask, is this required of me? And I want you to notice that when it says all things are helpful, it's going it, it recognizes something that, that a generic law doesn't do, which is, it, okay, let's, let's talk about this, okay? Think of the difference between how a parent seeks to control, command, um, disciple their children, and and the law for a nation, okay? When parents disciple their kids, those rules and the consequences uh, and how those rules are executed and carried out all going to be inherently controlled by who the child is, right? You know them. You know what their struggle is. You know what they're about. You know where their intentions are. But when you look at the legal code of a nation, none of that enters in, right? Very rarely does a judge go, look, I know your heart was in the right place, so I'm going to let it slide. They can't. It's inherently generic. And the problem with a list of rules is that it's so generic, it doesn't address any of us deeply. Okay. And so here's the point. It could be totally legal and terrible for you. Right? There are things that are no problem for some people and are also completely fine legally, morally, whatever, but can be tremendously destructive in your life. There are things that are easy for people to navigate in moderation that aren't easy for you. There are things that, uh, that can be a way and a means to progressing in the Christian life for other people, but actually move you in the opposite direction. It's not merely rule-keeping Paul is talking about here, and so he says, have you even asked if it's helpful? To give you an illustration, Earlier in the passage, he sums up, should I eat at, the temp, uh, at an idol's temple, saying, flee from immorality. What I want you to notice about that metaphor, fleeing, is that it implies motion, right? 
It's not a yes or no, it's which direction am I headed in? And he basically says, instead of thinking of the Christian life being rules of boundaries and going, okay, where's the fence and how close can I get to this without getting in trouble? He says, you should be running in a completely different direction. You see, the Christian life is Christocentric. Jesus is at the center. And by nature, the right question to ask is, how can I pursue Jesus? Not how close can I get to the things, you know, that are away from him? How far can I get and not walk away from them entirely? When we ask, is this helpful, we're changing from a list of static and generic rules to a concept of which direction am I moving in with this, okay? What am I trying to accomplish with this? He takes it even further. He says, he repeats again, all things are lawful, but not all things build up, okay? So the second question we see here is another one that legalism doesn't equip you to answer, which is how will this impact other people? You see, when life is lived according solely and completely to a list of rules, other people are merely a responsibility. They're just boxes that you tick, okay? And so you don't ask, how can I help this person? You ask, how much do I have to help people in general to satisfy the rules, right? And so uh, if the rule is you need to give $10,000 over the course of your life, you hit that and you stop because it's accomplished. The box is ticked. That's it. Jesus talks about this in his own exposition um, of the law and the Sermon on the Mount. There's a section in chapter 5 where over and over again he says, you've heard that it was said, and he takes both what the Bible says, what the Old Testament law says, and the traditions of those things, and then he contrasts it by saying, but I say to you. And you'll notice a few things he does. One is that he takes the law deeper. And so he says, you feel righteous because you've never murdered anyone, but I'm telling you, if you even have hatred in your heart, then that's just as good as murder. He says you can't satisfy merely for behavior, for mere conformity on the outside to the rules. What's going on at a deeper level? But the second thing he does is he takes the law and then he goes beyond it. And so he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I say pray for your neighbors. He says, he says go the extra mile. He says if somebody steals from you and they take your coat, offer them your tunic as well. Now, this is really important because there's this thought that says if what God gives us in Jesus Christ is by grace, meaning we don't deserve it and he does everything, okay, then doesn't grace lead to less obedience and not more? Doesn't that let us off the hook because we know we can't do it anyway, so we just do less and less? But Jesus constantly says, no, if you understand what's going on here, you'll do more than what the law requires, not less, okay? How can that possibly be? It's because this relational change in the law that we're talking about that comes in Jesus Christ also changes the way we view other people because we no longer view them as a means to fulfill the rules. We view them as people that we can love and we can serve. And so in the same context earlier that I said, it might be totally legal or morally fine for you to do, but it might not be helpful for you. Here, the recognition is it may even be morally fine and helpful for you, but it can be a tremendous hindrance to someone else, right? By doing it in their presence or in their company, by incorporating them in it, even though it's helpful for you, it's not helpful for them. Even though it's neutral for you, it's damaging to them. And the word he uses here for build up is oikodomo in the Greek. It literally means just to build a house, okay? And so the idea here is, before you make a decision to do or not to do, 
you ask, how is this going to impact people around me? Is it going to serve them? Is it going to strengthen them? Is it going to make them stronger? Is it going to draw them closer to Jesus? Now, do you recognize how, how a legalistic view, reducing it down just to a list of rules, will never ask that question? It doesn't have to. It's not required to. But more importantly than that, not only does legalism lead us to value rules more than people, which it always does, it also leads us to value ourself more than others. And people become merely an ends to a means, or a means to an end, right? And so we say, I need to love you so that I get the benefits of obedience. I need to do the right thing on your behalf, but it's basically on my behalf that I'm doing it, right? Keeping the rules as a primary way of getting through life makes other people a way to get what you want. But what Paul is talking about here is completely reverse of that. It says, even if there's something I want, is it good for other people? We lay down our wants, our desires, our thoughts in their best interest. So it turns it on its head. Now, he gives us a reason. Um, verse 24, he says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Okay, in other words, he just repeats here using this metaphor of a neighbor, and he says, when you ask what you're going to do, is this benefit? Does it benefit your neighbor? Is it for his good? How do you set the trajectory of the decisions in your life? Paul says here, ultimately, you do it by love. And that shouldn't be surprising if you're familiar with the teaching of Jesus, because Jesus and Paul, and the Apostle John, and Peter all communicate in their own words that love fulfills the law. Jesus says you can sum up the entire Old Testament law in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. And let's just recognize there is an obvious factor of that, and then there's a deeper. The obvious one we'll all get. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder him. Right? And so when Jesus says love fulfills the law, it means it naturally overflows the requirements of the law. But it does something more than that. And that's the point. That love leads us to do things that rules don't require. And so the ethic, the metric for us as Christians is never merely, is it rule keeping? It's, is it loving? Now, notice what he says here in verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So now he goes from these huge principles down to the practical of it. And remember again, this seems in contrast, if not direct contradiction, to what he said verses earlier. He says, do not partake of food sacrificed to idols at the temple. And now he says, when you go into the marketplace, don't ask where meat has its origins. Okay, now here's what you have to understand. Go back to uh, the first century where there's no refrigeration. Imagine that you have a party at one of these temples, and as per usual, you sacrifice the cow and dedicate it to the god, and then you serve your guests. What do you do with the leftovers? Remember, you've just killed an entire cow, right? That's probably more than a party's worth of portions. And you can't just take it all home and throw it in the freezer. 
And so what was common practice was to take the leftovers and sell it through the marketplace. So if you were to walk up to the butcher in the city of Corinth and order meat, some of that meat he will have butchered himself, but a good portion of it would have been butchered in these other situations and then sold to and through the meat market. And so what he says here is when you go to the meat market, don't investigate trying to figure out where it comes from. Now, once again, for the legalist, this is total nonsense. And I don't even have to um, make this hypothetical. I can point to, point to the Pharisees as an example. The Pharisees were these group of people in Jesus' time who devoted themselves to keeping the Old Testament law. They knew that there were 613 commandments given in the Old Testament, and they had written a commentary on those commandments and a commentary on the commentary. They were so specific in keeping the law that they had asked questions that none of us would think to ask. You may remember that the Old Testament law says, do not bear a burden on the Sabbath. In other words, there's one day of the week where you're not supposed to do any work. But the rabbis and then the Pharisees weren't content just to take that as a general principle. They, sent, they said, what exactly is a burden? Can you pick up your toothbrush on the Sabbath? Is that bearing a burden? What about for people who have a false leg? And so they have this wooden leg. By walking and lifting that off the ground, are they carrying a burden? And they thought through all of these, and usually out of necessity, they came to yes or no conclusions. So that's phase one. And I just want you to recognize tonight that very few of us are that devoted to rule keeping. But second, what happened next is they started to come up with clever ways to use the necessary exceptions to do what they wanted to do. And so they would, for example, recognize that a woman would need to tie her girdle, even on the Sabbath. And so they would say, you can't tie a rope and lower your, your bucket into the well, but you can tie your wife's girdle to the bucket and lower it to get water, right? This is something that legalism always does, because here's the problem. The Bible says you can't keep the law. In fact, it doesn't just say you can't keep God's law. It says if you're honest with yourself, you can't keep your own law. To put it simply, there are things that you know should not be done that you do anyways. There are things that you condemn other people for doing that you do yourself. There are judgments on what is right and wrong, and you don't always play by your own rules. So even if you're the only judge of your own life, you have to offer a sentence of condemnation. You have to. And so what happens if rule-keeping is what defines you as a righteous person, what defines you as a good person, what puts you on track for heaven or salvation or whatever, what makes you one of God's chosen is eventually, because the, either you are going to bend or the rules are, you'll bend the rules. Okay? Because now it's an identity issue. If you don't keep the rules, then you're not righteous and everything goes sideways, so you find a way to keep the rules. Okay? This, by the way, is not merely a religious thing. This is a human thing. You don't have to go to church to bend the rules. I promise you, okay? I was great at this in high school, and I was nowhere near church. I had come up with a way to define definitively that I was a better person than anyone around me and yet lived the way I wanted to live. But I had all the secrets of the rule book, right? I knew where the little, um, the, um, the fine print was. I knew all the exception clauses. I had all of that set up so that I could live the way I want, or at the end of the day, I had excuses. And so I'd say, well, see, it's okay for me to do this because, right? And so I always came out justified, and everybody else always came out condemned. That's a problem with legalism. 
And so what Paul is pointing out here is when you go into the meat market, actually, let me give you one more example of this. Jesus critiques the Pharisees of his day because they would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. This is what he means. He means that if they were walking down the street and they accidentally inhaled a bug, they would start gagging and coughing, trying to make sure that they didn't eat this unclean food. And he says, but when you look at the rest of your life, you might as well sit down and eat an entire camel, right? Because they were inconsistent. They made a big deal out of little things and would fight like crazy to make sure and they would ignore the big ones. And he says, you pay attention and make sure that you tithe even your cumin and your thyme, just your spices, whatever you grow in your garden, you make sure you count off 10 leaves and give it to God. And he's like, but you don't show mercy to other people, but you don't fight injustice, right? That's something that's going on here. And so Jesus recognizes that we can do the same thing. And uh, I don't know if you've seen Portlandia, but there's a perfect illustration of what's going on here in our own culture. And it has to do with the fact that all of us are suddenly very nervous about where our food comes from, right? So we want to know if it's non-GMO. We want to know if it's organic. We want to know if it's free range. We want to know it's cruel cruelty-free. And Portlandia does this great sketch in one of their first seasons where a couple's sitting at a restaurant in Portland, and they go, now, is this, is this Portland organic, or is this just merely organic? And they pull out this thing, and they introduce him to their chicken by name that they're about to eat, and they tell him all about the life that he lived. And they go, you know, this just isn't enough. And they get in their car, and they drive to the farm so that they can see what's going on, okay? That's what he's envisioning here. Somebody walking in and going, okay, I'm not supposed to eat meat sacrificed to idols, so can you tell me where this particular rack of rib came from? And the guy says, well, I got it from so-and-so. Okay, can I have his address? Because I'd like to go talk to him. And you go, okay, so did you sacrifice this to an idol? This is what he's imagining here, okay? Now, I don't know if he's being realistic or facetious, and it doesn't really matter. But the point is simply this. He says... If it's in the market and you don't know it's been sacrificed to idols, leave it alone. What he's trying to stop here is something that always involves or is always involved in the legalist approach, which is obsessive, obsessive time consuming commitments to keeping the rules. Okay. I'll come back to this later, but we have a modern condition called orthorexia. I'm sure you've heard of anorexia. Orthorexia is also an eating condition. Uh, and and here's, here's what it means. It means that you've become so obsessive about the materials involved in food preparation or the origin of your food that you can no longer trust your friends or a restaurant to provide that. And so it actually starts to control your life, just like other food and eating disorders do. Okay? You can look it up. I don't have to make things up like this. We're crazy. Okay, but that's the problem from a religious side that he's talking about here. It's an obsessive need to make sure you're not breaking the rules. And at the same time, we look at this and we go, but aren't you being cons inconsistent? I thought you said it was bad to eat this stuff. So if it's bad, shouldn't we avoid it at all costs, right? Have you ever heard the argument of some people where they're like, look, it's very simple. You can say it's, it's you know, um, it's fine, but... If you take it again and again, isn't it like radiation? Aren't you slowly, you know, moralistically getting cancer from the things you're doing? Even a smallest thing that's bad and evil, I want to avoid. You'll hear these things, um, but, but oftentimes they're missing the main point. Here's the main point in what Paul is saying. What was his criticism in eating at the temple? It was that you were a partaker in the worship itself. 
that you are, com- you are a participant in the sacrifice itself. And so he says, before that sacrifice, it's meat. And now he says, after that sacrifice, it's just meat again. Now, that doesn't mean that you should go, oh, this was sacrificed to an idol on Tuesday. It's no big deal. I can eat it now, right? It's, it's not like you have um, some sort of waiting period. But if you don't know it's been sacrificed to an idol, then you're not a participant in the sacrifice. Do you see the difference? It has to do with what's conscious. And he says, as long as it's not conscious, you don't have to pursue making it conscious. Because you're inherently not a participant. It's merely food. And then he does something tremendously subversive. Notice what he says next. He gives us a reason, verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is what he says. He says, effectively... Food is one of the things that God created to be good, to be enjoyed. Now, um, this is another thing that legalism doesn't understand. Eventually, the world is merely a dangerous test, right? And so you've got this huge exam, and everything's a trap. Everything's a trick. And we view God as giving us a law only to test us. And if you go back all the way to the beginning... If you look in the Garden of Eden, you see something tremendously different than that, okay? God doesn't set up one tree and go, look, I know you're hungry, but don't eat of this tree, right? Like we would do with a child that we were trying to test their self-control. We put a cookie on the table and go, I'm going to leave the room. Don't eat the cookie. But that's not what you find in the garden. You find that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is one of a multitude of available options, right? There's a whole variety of fruits and vegetables growing in the garden, only one is off limits, okay? When you look even before that at the creation of the world, what is the constant refrain as God looks at the world that he made? That it's good, okay? Legalism always reduces the world down to being better avoided, okay? And so I don't want to, um, I don't want to be exposed to evil, and so I'm going to not do this, I'm going to not do this. Everything becomes a test, Here's what G.K. Chesterton says about that scenario in the garden. He said, the Garden of Eden was a variety of mercies, and even the one thing they were commanded not to do was the greatest mercy of them all. Right? Eventually, eventually, legalism makes you think that God is out to get you. But we as Christians understand that when God gives commandments, they're not arbitrary. When God gives commandments, it's because he's seeking our good. And so we don't keep the rules because they're the rules. We keep the rules because the, good, or the rule, rule giver is good and trustworthy and has our best interest in mind. And so what he reminds here is, look, God created this world to be enjoyed. And yeah, there's the fall, and yeah, there's sin, and yeah, there's death, and yeah, there's suffering. That's all true. But that hasn't been able to completely remove the reality that God gave us something good to enjoy, that life is better than non-life that it's full of pleasures and good things. And if you make it all about the rules, you will pair out all of the pleasures because they're too great of a risk. Better not eat because you might become a glutton. So you starve yourself, but at least you live a righteous life. But here's why this is subversive, okay? According to the rabbis, this verse, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, comes from Psalm 24. That's not according to the rabbis. You can read that yourself. Um, but according to them, this is the reason why you needed to pray a blessing over every meal, because it all belonged to God, which is a simple principle. It's the idea of no matter how that food got on the table, no matter what job you work, no matter who gave it to you, trace it far enough back, and it comes from the giver of all good gifts. 
So say thank you. The reason why it's subversive is because that would not have been the case with food that was sacrificed to, the idol, to idols, right? If you went to a rabbi's table and you quoted him this verse before you sat down a meal that may have come from a sacrificial temple, remember these are the strain out of gnat guys? They're not going to follow this. Paul uses it in completely the opposite direction. And so instead of just saying, you should be grateful that God has given you good things, he says, all things God has given are good. And they can be abused and they can be twisted. But enjoyment is God-given, and you should participate in this. And he says, he says effectively here that as long as you're not going against your conscience and as long as you're not participating right alongside in an act of idolatrous worship, enjoy yourself. Augustine, the ancient church father, summed it up this way. He said, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor and yourself, and then do as you please. Enjoy yourself. Notice how he continues on. He says, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Now here's another thing. What does he infer here? What does he expect? He, he says, one, non-believers, non-Christians, people who aren't part of your church are going to invite you to dinner. And then two, you should go. This is another thing that eventually legalism does. It doesn't just see people as a means to an end. It sees them as a threat to purity. And so you don't hang out with those type of people. And you make sure and stay away from these type of people. Have you ever noticed how, how there were only two options in the religious leaders' uh, minds of Jesus' day? When they looked at his life, it was either if you were really a righteous person, you would avoid those people, or since you spend time with them, you must be doing all the evil things that they do. What was Jesus' reputation in, in his day? As a glutton and a drunkard? Because he hung out with gluttons and drunkards. As a sinner? Because he hung out with sinners. And legalism eventually will do the same thing. It'll go, I shouldn't be around people like you. I, I should stay away from this. That What's most important in keeping the rules is keeping the rules, so I'm going to keep you at a distance. And Paul here just just talks in a way that that's not even in his mind. He doesn't say, hey, you should be really careful who you hang out with. Even the one time that Paul says bad company corrupts good morals, which is in this letter, is a little bit interesting because he's quoting a pagan playwright. Right? So whatever that means, it clearly can't mean stay away from people who aren't Christians because he's like, I'm borrowing this from a non-Christian. You know, that's not the point. Jesus puts it this way in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I do not pray that you, God, would take them out of the world, but that they would not be overcome by evil. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the world or of the earth, you are the light of the world, the implication is that you will be present and in the midst of the world as it is. He doesn't call for escapism and removing yourself from life. And so the idea here is that you should maintain your relationships with people who aren't Christians. And there are clearly going to be places that you cannot enter in and participate with them. See, last week's sermon. But that's, that's only one part of these people's lives. And there will be other parts where you should stay engaged, where you can have dinner with them. In fact, the only place in this letter, once again, where Paul says don't eat with a person is if they're a Christian who are rebelliously and actively choosing a life of sin. He says don't eat with those people. 
That's another sermon. You can go back and listen to it. But what does he say here? He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay? So he says, don't in interrogate your host about where their meat came from either. It's the same principle we saw in the marketplace. But he does make an exception here. Notice what he says in the next verse. Uh, he says, but, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then do not eat it. Doesn't that seem strange? Once again, it seems inconsistent. And I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. It seems inconsistent because we're all avid A-plus student legalists. And so what we really want is just simple rules. And Paul doesn't give us simple rules here. And so it looks one way here, and it looks a completely different way here, and you have to be thoughtful to figure out where he's coming from. And so here he says, if somebody brings it up as an issue, co issue of conscience, don't eat it. And there's two possibilities. One here is that it's your host. He knows that you're a Christian. He knows that you've broken off from these things. He sits down at the table and he goes, oh man, I wasn't thinking at all. I, this food came directly from an idolatrous temple. You probably shouldn't eat it, huh? And part of us might expect him to go, no, it's fine. It's just food after all. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. I wasn't a participant. That's not what it is. And it's for the same secondary reason that Paul gave us last week why we shouldn't be participants in the altar. It's because it's confusing to other people. There is a distinction between their God and our God. There is a division between their worship and our worship. And so we shouldn't downplay that stuff when it's consciously presented to us. But there's another possibility, and I think it's the better one, that the idea here is that you're at a party where you're not the only guest. Which in, in the ancient world, because you generally ate in the courtyard and it was open and people would just come in and come out, it wasn't like our controlled hospitality where you have a very defined guest list, okay? And so the idea here is you're sitting at the table and somebody comes in and goes, man, I was with Joe yesterday. I know that that food came from an idol. Are you going to eat that? So the idea here is that there's another Christian present whose conscience is offended and they don't want to eat. And the advice he's giving here is don't eat. And notice here, he doesn't lean on his own arguments and say, hey, grow up, dude. It's not a big deal. Didn't you read what Paul just said? Right? He says, don't do it. This is why. Look at, listen what he says. He says, first off, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, and then he clarifies in 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. He says, don't do it for the sake of their conscience. Okay? Now here's another thing that legalism won't do. It doesn't care about other people's consciences. It only cares about your own. But if you're interested in what's best for them, it changes the formula. But notice what he says next, because it's important. He says, uh, for why, this is halfway through 29, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Most likely here, Paul isn't just stating a statement that he believes, but he's, he's guessing a counterpoint in his audience. Remember here that we're not reading a sermon or a dialogue, we're reading a letter. And so if Paul wants this letter to land home, he has to guess where they're going to have caveats and exceptions, where somebody's going to raise their hand and ask a question, and especially when they're going to disagree. And so he imagines them saying, why should I be controlled by his conscience? It's his weak conscience. I have a strong conscience. It's not a big deal. And then he answers his question in the next sentence, and this is what he says in verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Now, it sounds here like Paul is just saying, if I said thank you, then you can't control me with your conscience. 
And I just point out to you tonight that if that's what Paul is doing here, is saying, you can't control me with your weak conscience, then it, it doesn't make any sense of what he said. And so more likely here, what he's saying is, why would I thank God for something and then allow it to be divisive in relationship? Okay, and so the idea is, why can I think it's justified to be grateful for something when it's destructive to someone else? And so what, clearly what Paul is not saying, and I will encourage you tonight to not do this, okay? It's not if you can say thank you for it, then you can do it, right? It's not that, that saying a blessing over something inherently makes it good, okay? People have been tremendously good, individuals, nations, all across the board, of using God as a justification for wicked, answer, or, uh, wicked actions. Have they not? What he's saying here instead is, how can you possibly reduce something down to gratitude and a gift from God when it's destructive in someone else's life? It's, it's an incongruence that he's drawing out. Now, notice how he moves in verse 31. He says, so, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Once again, he doesn't just give us, should you eat, yes or no? Should you drink, yes or no? Should you do it, yes or no? He doesn't just give you one. He says, whether you do, your aim, your trajectory, the guiding principle should be do everything to the glory of God. Okay? And so we've already seen, is it beneficial is a metric? Is it building up for others? Is it edifying as a metric? And now he says, is it glorifying to God? Okay. The purpose of life as defined by the Bible is to give God glory. And this is what that means. It means that, um, that we make known through our words and our actions how great God is. Okay. And so the goal in our life is to make known the goodness of God, to declare it, to proclaim it, to reflect it, effectively worship. And what he says here is that should be the underlying final ultimate determinant for your behavior. Will this bring glory to God? And do you see how that cuts through the things that were so confusing just a second ago? Is somebody going to be glorified by God if you, if you draw a line in the sand and say, brother, I'm eating this sandwich? No, right? What's more glorifying to say is, yeah, I'm free to eat this sandwich, but I'm also free to give it up, and you're more important to me, right? With your host who, who recognizes, and instead of, instead of just saying, oh, it's not a big deal, everything is lawful, and confusing the understanding of Christianity, you say, no, there really is a distinction here, and that distinction should be maintained. Now, when Paul say, here says everything, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, he's clearly transcending just food sacrifice to idols, right? This is one of the few verses that you could just uproot from its context and apply very broadly. What he says here is that the purpose of life is to glorify God. Make that the aim. Make that the metric. Make that the determination. And the reason is very simple, okay? It's because... God created us to reflect his goodness. Actually, everything God does inherently is created to reflect its goodness. In Psalm 19, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's by design. That's what they were built to do. That's why we can look at the world and go, wow, look at how great God is. When the Bible says that we as human beings were created in the image of God, that means that our goal, our purpose the reason we were made was to reflect 
the goodness of God, to show the manifold grace of God, as Peter puts it. And once again, that's not merely rule-keeping. See, here's what happens. If it's all about the rules, who are you glorifying when you come across the finish line with your hands up and you play, place that gold medal around your neck and you say, yeah, that's right, I kept the rules. I'm good. I'm great. I'm perfect. All of y'all, second place in Lowell, right? But for the Christian, we recognize that we don't keep the rules to prove how great we are. We keep the rules because God is so great and so great, so good that the rules are worth keeping, right? It's, it's a complete change in motive. It doesn't say, I am the hero. It says God is. And so it changes the game. And then he continues in verse 32, and he sums up what he's already said multiple times throughout the last few chapters. He says, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Remember here, the word offense is not equal to our modern concept of offending, Okay? This isn't somebody who's bothered that you do something. This is somebody who stumbled. Right? They are prone to do the same thing. They go, oh, if he can do it, I can probably do it too. It's not harmful for you, it is for them, but they follow in your footsteps and do harm to themselves. That's what this word offense means. But notice he doesn't just say don't offend Christians. Don't offend the church of God. He says don't put stumbling bro- bo- blocks in the way of the Jews or of the Gentiles. Don't trip other people up. And he unpacks and he says that he's done this personally. He says, verse 33, just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do not, uh, sorry, everything I do, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Coming back again to this idea of legalism. Legalism makes people either obstacles to your righteousness or means to the end of your righteousness. And so it's always about your advantage. And when Paul presents his own example, he says, every decision I make, I lay aside my own advantage for the sake of others. Every decision I make is not merely to the glory of God, love the Lord your heart with, with all your heart, so mind and strength, but also love your neighbor and, your, and yourself. And of course, those feed into one another. And I want you to remember here that the Corinthian church are recipients of that behavior. When he says here, I do things for the advantage of others, he's talking about the church in Corinth. If you go back to chapter 9, he says, look, when I was working in your midst, I didn't take a paycheck because I didn't want it to hinder anyone from becoming a Christian. I knew there were other teachers around who were making big bucks on false doctrine. I wanted to keep that distinct so that you'd know my motives were pure, so that you'd know I was worth listening to to you, so that you'd know the God of the universe. So I laid aside, what is my right? A paycheck right? They're recipients of this. And then notice how he finishes this off in 11 verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I want you to notice that even this philosophy here cannot be reduced down to what would Jesus do. It can't. What would Jesus do just becomes a slightly fuzzy way of rule keeping. I say slightly fuzzy because there's lots of things Jesus didn't do that are going to come up. Right? There's lots of areas that we don't have recorded in Jesus' life, and I promise you this, when you fill in the blanks, it will look like you. What would Jesus do quickly becomes, what do I want to do that I can use Jesus to justify? Okay? But more importantly than that, what would Jesus do misses the reality of what Jesus has done. It forgets the fact that it's changed. 
And so we don't follow Jesus' behavior because that behavior was right, but for a different reason. And yet at the same time, it comes out as imitation. Let me deal with another way that legalism breaks down with examples, okay? One is simply be imitators of me, right? Because, because I am the rule keeper, because I'm perfect, all you have to do is do exactly like I do, which falls short of all of the questions that we're reading and falls short of recognizing how tremendously blind we are in our own minds. And so what happens here gets scary, doesn't it? Right? Uh, when, uh, when somebody just says, look, just do, what I, do as I do. Just follow along. But the second thing is, others who are legalists try and keep themselves as a distance, and they say, do as I say, not as I do. Just keep the rules. Pay no attention to me because I've elevated myself above the rules, right? Because I've done this so long that I've upgraded, and now I have all of these extra things, right? We use these as a way to, to create legalists. And here's the thing about, about legalism that even Jesus recognized. He says, you'll travel to the Pharisees. You'll travel to the ends of the earth to make a single convent, convert, and then you'll turn it into a greater disciple of hell than yourself. In other words, these things get worse, naturally. They don't get better. This idea of progress that every student of the law will get better and better, they will get better, better at breaking the rules and getting away with it. Okay? But here's the big point. When he says, be imitators of me, he doesn't just say, I'm the example. He says, as I am of Christ. In other words, anywhere where Paul isn't imitating Jesus gets cut, cut away. The one that you ultimately, truly, and finally follow is Jesus. Other leaders, myself included, will let you down, will lead you astray. You've got to have that peace in the bucket. But at the same time, at the same time, Paul here is willing to point to himself as an example. He says, you can follow me. If you're trying to figure this out, walk this way. But here's what I want to draw your attention to. Imitation inherently makes us think of just an example. And it is an example. But every time it's used in the Bible, it's not merely an example. And this is what I mean. Paul says the same thing a little bit differently in the book of Ephesians. This is what he says. He said, beloved, be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay. Now, you can be an imitator of anyone. Right? You, can, you can have an accent like Richard Nixon. You can dress like Jackie O. You can have an example and follow it. But when we add imitate as children, father and children, there's a difference there, okay? It's the fact that you're not just imitating something in front of you, you're imitating something that you've received, okay? And so as God has loved you, you now love. As God has behaved towards you, you now behave towards others. And so God has forgiven us, so we should forgive. Do you see the difference there? It's not just forgiveness is good because God does it, so you should forgive. It's you have been forgiven, so you should forgive. And in the same way that Paul had laid aside his own advantage for the sake of the Corinthians, so also Jesus' example for us was not merely an example. He laid aside his advantages on our behalf. He took his rights and his glories. He took his will. He took it all and he laid it aside. He lived an obedient life as a servant. He died the death that you deserve and he did it for you. That's why we approach the rules differently. Okay? We approach the rules differently because we see, we see Jesus who lays aside his advantages, keeps the rules that he was never meant to keep. He's the lawmaker, 
right? But he becomes the law keeper on our behalf. We see the God of the universe becoming submissive to authority. We see the great, worthy of all the glory of the universe taking on uh, the form of a servant humbly in humility. He lays aside all of that for our sake and that changes That changes not merely your relationship with the law and that it frees you up so you can say all things are lawful, but it also changes your view of what the good life is. changes your view of who God is. It changes your view of what's important in life. And so, of course, things like love start to trump just merely the rules. Of course, getting close to a God like that starts to be more than merely the rules, right? And so you don't open your Bible and read it daily because if you don't, God will get you. And you don't do it because it's what God requires. You do it because you want to know the God who loved you so dearly. And he says that this word talks about him. And you don't go out and take care of the poor because God demands it. And if you don't, he'll get you. You do it because Jesus says, when you do it, you do it unto me. When you do this, you're loving me. See, whether it's this moral relativism, or or I should just call it autonomy, because that's what moral relativism is. It says, I am my own God, I make my own decisions on what's right or wrong, and that's the way I live. Whether it's that, or legalism that says God is just a a rule giver, his rules are arbitrary, and the best way to avoid him is to keep the rules. The cross of Jesus speaks to both of those. It takes the legalist and it says, you don't live up. You can't possibly keep the rules. at the other side it speaks to the relativist it speaks to the autonomous and it says there really is a law it's like this if Jesus came and didn't just give the rules didn't just walk the walk to show us but actually lived the life you cannot live and died the death that you deserve it means that sin and the wickedness in your own heart is so serious that Jesus had to die for it okay that takes the relativism out of, out of your morality. It takes the autonomy out of the situation because God is so concerned about evil that he will hold his own son accountable to make sure that it's dealt with. But at the same time, not only was your sin so serious that God had to die for it, God loves you so much that he willingly did so. And so it takes, it takes the legalist and it changes the way we think about the law We sing a hymn just occasionally. It's the only one I've ever heard that expresses this. It's called How Long. And it says this, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, will turn a slave into a child and duty into choice. This is what it means. It means that if you recognize what Jesus really did on your behalf, that the one who commanded the laws came and kept it on your own behalf, then you're going to understand that your relationship is no longer one of slavery but you've been adopted into the family, which changes the game. The rule giver is your loving father. And then second, it turns duty into choice. In other words, it's not just the things you have to do, it's what you want to do. And so the solution for autonomy, the solution for legalism is the same. It's reminding yourself of who Jesus is, receiving the work that he has done, and recalibrating. And I don't care where you come from, one side or the other, you're prone to both. C.S. Lewis called it the principle of undulation, okay? Human beings are like pendulums. 
You see it in your emotional state, right? You have good days and bad days. You have highs and you have lows. You see it in your relationships. You draw close and you separate. And you see it in your relationship with God. Sometimes you feel like he's present, he's there, you're excited, you're pressing into your Christian life. Other times God feels distant, you feel a bit cold, you don't really know what's going on. That's because humans aren't good at stasis. That's the principle of undulation. And on topics like this, it means that you're most likely going to swing from one side to the other. Of indulging in your so-called freedoms in Christ in a destructive way to you and other people and justifying it. And you need to repent. But thinking, well, what's better than that, at least, is just keeping the rules rigidly. No, is to make the necessity of Jesus' death irrelevant to your life. And so wherever you're at, wherever you're on the spectrum, come back to the center. Come back to the truth. Recognize and receive again the work that Jesus has done. And what that leads to is an ethic. An ethic of, is it helpful? Practically, does this draw me closer to the Lord? Does this conform me more in his image? Of, is this edifying? How does this impact other people? Is it a hindrance to them receiving Jesus? Does it stand in a way that doesn't reflect the glory of God? Is it glorifying is the next one. Does this demonstrate and testify to the goodness of God? If you fast because you have to, that just shows that you have self-control. If you fast because you found something greater than food in Jesus Christ, that glorifies him. Okay. And, then, and then lastly, is it following in Jesus' footsteps? Is it reciprocating this love that you can never pay back, that you can never repay, but you know what it looks like, not just because you've seen it, but because you've received it? Let's pray. Father, it was true before, before you came that human beings did not keep the law. It was true before we knew who you were or what you've done that we didn't keep the law. But even for those of us tonight who know and who have received that work in Jesus Christ, we still cannot keep the law. And when we reduce life down just to a, a life of keeping the rules, we oversimplify what you're calling us to. We miss out on good things in life. We settle for second best and we put ourselves at the center of our lives. We make people either an obstacle or a means to the end of self-gratification and we seek to glorify ourselves instead of the God who is worthy. And I ask that you would just forgive us of this. I pray that you would recalibrate our hearts to the reality that Paul presents, that we wouldn't settle for a simple list of rules but that we would seek to know you and to follow hard after you and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to be imitators and to be conformed into your image and grow more into your likeness with every day, to know and to show your love. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.